Hi, John Gimigliano here, and I'd like to welcome you back to our Catching Up on Capitol Hill podcast series, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm glad you're with us today because you are in for a treat as we take up one of the most interesting, I dare say, exciting topics in the tax world, the topic of Senate parliamentary procedure. Now, hold on. I can hear phones being shut off all over podcast land. Bear with me for a minute because I promise you this is a fascinating topic. Specifically, we are talking about a Senate procedure known as the filibuster or relatedly cloture and growing calls to eliminate that rule and what that might mean for taxes. Look, I won't bore you with the whole history of cloture in the Senate, but you are probably aware that the Senate generally requires a supermajority to prove legislation. This rule of cloture generally came about in its modern form in 1917, when the Senate put in a rule that required a supermajority of senators, which is currently set at 60, to agree to end debate on a particular topic so that the Senate could move to final vote. The reason that this rule, long subject to criticism by those looking for more decisive action in the Senate, is once again under scrutiny, is the long and in many cases unfortunate history of the rule being used to block action. In particular, it was used to stall civil rights legislation for decades. And to be fair, the power of the filibuster, at least in an absolute sense, has been in decline for some time. You may know that there was a budgetary procedure known as reconciliation, which, with many strings attached, can circumvent the requirement of a supermajority vote in the Senate. Reconciliation was famously used to enact both the TCJA and at least portions of the Affordable Care Act. Also, back in 2014, then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid changed the Senate rules to require only a simple majority of the Senate to confirm all judges below the level of the Supreme Court. With one foot now on the banana peel, the Senate put a second foot on the banana peel in 2017 when Majority Leader Mitch McConnell went one step further by changing the rules for Supreme Court justices. Now the question is, should the Senate go all the way? invoke the nuclear option, as they say, and change the Senate rules to merely require a simple majority for general legislation. To explore this topic, I'm joined by two colleagues, likely familiar to you, Jennifer Gray, formerly a tax counsel in the Senate, and Carol Coolish, formerly a tax counsel in the House. Jennifer, you're a Senate person. Can you remind us of what the filibuster rule is, and maybe more importantly, why it matters? Well, as you mentioned, John, generally the filibuster rule requires 60 votes to stop debate. The rule in the Senate is unlimited debate is the general rule. So any senator can speak for as long as he wants about a particular piece of legislation uh, famously depicted in the Mr. Smith Goes to Washington movie. So in order to stop debate, if 60 senators want to actually stop the debate and move forward with a vote, they can do that with that 60 vote number. What that also means, obviously, the inverse of that is that if a 41 senators do not want to stop debate or they can effectively kill a bill if they so choose by refusing to put closure in place. For practical purposes, what that means is that the Senate generally needs to be a more bipartisan place, assuming that one party does not have a 60-vote majority, which is fairly unusual. So I think for practical purposes, the real impact of the filibuster and cloture is that the Senate tends to be more bipartisan than the House. Got it. So for whatever flaws it may have, one of the aspects of the filibuster rules is it generally requires bipartisanship in the Senate at some level. Okay, got it. Now, Carol, you and I were House people. Now, let's take a second and compare what Jennifer just described to what the process in the House is like and how that maybe produces different outcomes. 
Yeah, in, in the House, it's completely different. The House is basically majority rules. Whichever party has a majority of seats sets the rules for considering legislation, and it only takes a majority to pass legislation. So, for example, with the current Democratic-controlled House, it's possible to pass legislation with just Democrat votes. But keep in mind that Speaker, in this case Speaker Pelosi, still has to figure out how to get enough Democratic votes, given that there are different kinds of Democrats with different views and different priorities. So that explains why you see some bills, like the House Heroes Bill, which is its next response to the, the COVID-19 situation, and it also recently passed a big House infrastructure bill. That explains why you see some of those bills pass the House largely with just Democratic votes, because that's all they need. They can get them with just Democratic votes. But bills often address a broad range of different priorities in order to get enough Democrats on board so that it passes with the majority of the House. But bottom line, majority rules in the House. Got it. So I think what you said is in the House, you're very often concerned about getting enough votes within the controlling party, whereas in the Senate, you're often worried about finding enough votes across the aisle in the other party. Is So in the House, a majority of one can be an absolute majority where that's not true in the Senate. Got it. Okay. So now let's imagine we are in a world where the filibuster rule has been eliminated. It's, it's a rule that would be, require a rule change in the Senate. And so the Senate goes nuclear, as, as they say. Jennifer, back to you. As a practical matter, what does that then mean for the passage of legislation? It generally makes legislation easier to pass because it would basically turn the Senate into the House and that a one-vote majority would rule and you could pass legislation assuming you're the majority party. As long as you can keep your folks together, you could pass legislation more easily and you don't necessarily need the bipartisan support that you need under the current rules. The reason why this rule is still in effect for a lot of legislation, I mean, my understanding has been that because the Senate flips back and forth, oftentimes there's a concern that, you know, the Republicans might, when they control the Senate, they might not want to get rid of the filibuster rule because they say, okay, even though that might make it easier for us to pass legislation with fewer than 60 votes, which is a simple majority when we're in control, we worry that the Senate is going to flip back to Democrat and then they'll have that same flexibility and the Senate will be like the House and there won't be that same bipartisanship. But what's good for us in one Congress might not be so good if the Senate flips. Is that the general reason why it's still around? That's certainly one of the reasons. And we actually saw this in real life, as John indicated, under the Democrats was the, the first cut at the filibuster rule, um, which he said allowed uh, the confirmation of lower court judges and administration folks uh, with less than 60 votes. And then on the flip side, when the Republicans came in, they extended that to the Supreme Court. And I know there were at least some Democratic senators when that first move was made that expressed that exact concern that we may not be in control forever and we have to think about what this might mean if the other party's in control. Carol, back to you then, because that's, you know, this potential for legislative whiplash is, is a real one, right? So let's just try and bring this back to tax then. Let's just imagine, bear with me, we're in a scenario in, in this question where, let's say Democrats have run the table in the November elections, right? They've maintained the House, they've flipped the Senate, and they've won the White House. And then let's say that we've taken this step of getting rid of the filibuster, we've gone nuclear, so a simple majority is all that's required to pass legislation in the Senate. Let's just think about what that means for a moment for the tax agenda. Let's just think the first couple of years of, you know, what would be a Biden administration, 2021, 2022, what do you think is on the agenda in that world in a Biden administration where we no longer have the filibuster? 
Okay, and and again, you're saying House is, is controlled by Democrats, and the in the in the Senate, the Democrats might have 50 votes, but they might not have 50 seats, but they might not have 60. I think from a next perspective, how significant implications are turn on exactly what the Democrats want to do on the tax front and how quickly. If they want to do one big tax bill early on, where there are tax cuts for some that are offset by tax increases for others, or that might reflect net tax increase, just keep in mind that they could do that even if the filibuster rules were still kept in place using those special budget reconciliation rules you, you mentioned at the outset. Um, those allow for the passage of certain kinds of legislation, including revenue legislation, with just a simple majority. And as you also said, those were the rules the Republicans used to pass the TCJA in 2017 when the Republicans as they do now, control the Senate. In that context, they affected the design and the substance of the TCJA because the budget reconciliation rules include restrictions on increasing the deficit in the long term. So that resulted in stuff like making the individual tax cuts temporary and raising revenue in the out years through things or a host of things. But one example is the schedule change in the interest limitation, the ramping up of it. Those were things the Republicans needed to do so that they could make sure that in the out years they didn't increase the deficit. But the reconciliation restrictions on increasing the deficit in the out years just aren't as big of a deal if what the Democrats are looking to do is design a bill that wouldn't increase the deficit in the out years anyway, because they're going to offset the cost of cuts with increases. But with that said, if the Democrats did have to use the reconciliation rules, if they didn't, if the filibuster were still in place and they were stuck with using reconciliation rules to get legislation through the Senate, they'd still have to deal with other procedural requirements of budget reconciliation that can be cumbersome. For example, the House and Senate would have to pass a budget resolution first, plus there can only be one reconciliation bill relating to revenue in a fiscal year. So if the Democrats want to do multiple bills that include tax provisions in a fiscal year, or if they want to do tax bills that include net tax cuts, or if they just don't want to deal with all the intricate rules of budget reconciliation, which involve pulling in sometimes the Senate parliamentarian to make calls. Um, lifting the filibuster rules could help them move legislation through the Senate with a simple majority, and I think it would still give them flexibility to do more. So eliminating the filibuster still could have an impact on tax legislation, just perhaps not as much as it would for some other kinds of legislation where reconciliation is not an option, and also perhaps as much, not as much of an impact as it would if you were dealing with Republicans controlling everything and having to do what they did in the TCJA with if they had to use reconciliation, they have to find a way to make legislation not increase the deficit in the out years. For them, not having that restriction to be able to do big tax cuts in the out years would be very substantial. So what that means then is, well, reconciliation would have been a, a vehicle in any event to do major tax changes, including repealing big pieces of the TCJA. This gives them, you know, sort of a straitjacket, right? A procedural straitjacket that they could be freed of. And then they could have a vote every day. Today, let's vote on, you know, the corporate rate. Tomorrow, let's vote on individual rates. Tomorrow, let's vote, have a pass a bill appealing Section 199 and Cap A. Much easier to do that um, with, without the budget reconciliation straitjacket if you take off the filibuster rules. Okay. Now, Jennifer, last question for you. Uh, we just talked about the short term, 2021, 2022. What, is, what do you think this nuclear option might mean for the tax code long term? So let's just look, you know, maybe five and ten years out. What, what, what do we think the future might hold in that scenario? 
Well, I think from a, a bigger picture, I think it would mean that in some ways elections have bigger consequences. Right now, if one party or the other can hold at least 41 Senate votes, I think they feel at least some level of protection that they at least will have some say in most legislation moving forward, which obviously includes tax legislation. I think we'll see wider policy swings than we do now for that reason as well. I think, as you mentioned, there'll be more bills on the floor right now. Part of why you do not see a lot of individual tax bills is because of this filibuster rule and some of the rules associated with it, which means that that particular bills could take a long time to go through the floor. And also, a lot of folks may have a lot of things they want to bring into play on a tax bill debate and that would make that easier to deal with as well. And as Carol mentioned, I think it effectively eliminates reconciliation for tax purposes. And that, as Carol mentioned, gets rid of a lot of the straitjacket rules that reconciliation places upon a bill. So the potential then there is is for, because inevitably, right, the control swings back and forth, it always has, and likely will again, that uh, when control, say, switch back to be unified by Republicans, there's, we're likely to have a complete reversal of tax policy all over again. And I guess that feels more like a parliamentary system where the party in control can pretty much do what they want. And so I guess if you're looking for greater stability in our tax system, this probably doesn't give you greater stability. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe we sometimes want really you know, bold action, and we haven't always been able to get it. Look how long it took us to do tax reform. But in terms of stability, in terms of policy, it's less likely that you would have that without the filibuster. Well, so much more to say about this topic, but that's all we have time for today. At least today, we got finally a chance to start to look forward to the possible future of our tax system. In closing, let me just make one last observation. You know, this whole language of going nuclear, it sounds awfully dramatic, especially when we're just talking about, in the end, a Senate procedure. But I guess just to play that an analogy of that, it's something like this. You have two opposing sides, each one struggling to gain the upper hand. And one side has a tool that can decisively tip the field in their favor. And it is right there at their fingertips. And even though you know that there will be collateral damages and maybe long-term implications of using that tool, you do so anyway. And I guess that takes us back to the real nuclear option. And the way it was been described over the years is like this, that we as a species are engaged in an ongoing experiment. This is an experiment of whether or not we can control our ability or the temptation to reach out and just push that red button and forever to change the world as we've known it, perhaps not for the better. And that experiment can only end in one way, failure. Otherwise, the experiment continues. So the question, that we try to tackle today is have we reached the end of our experiment with the nuclear option in the Senate? I don't know the answer to that, but the coming years will tell us. With that, I thank you, Jennifer and Carol, and of course, I thank you, and I look forward to speaking with you next time.